may not know this, but we recently celebrated the 35th birthday of the National Security Decision Directive Number 145. Enacted in 1984 under President Reagan, the NSDD 145 dictates U.S. national policy on telecommunications and the security of automated information systems, with an emphasis on the national security activities of the U.S. government and military combat readiness. It is particularly noteworthy in that the NSDD-145 has been cited as the first U.S. presidential policy on cybersecurity, promulgated at a time when home computing and the Internet were in their infancy. Amazingly, what propelled cybersecurity concerns to the upper echelons of the U.S. government at a time when such things might be considered laughable or far-fetched was the success of Matthew Broderick's cyber thriller War Games in 1983. As later reported by the New York Times, it was after seeing the film and realizing the security ramifications that intrusive computer access could portend that President Reagan began pressing his national security team for answers. The NSDD-145 was followed a few weeks later by the passage of the Counterfeit Access Device and Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, called the first piece of federal legislation to focus directly on computer abuses. Suddenly, the idea of cybersecurity was more than just a game or a great idea for a movie. Welcome to If When, Jacob's series of interviews exploring the world of emerging technologies. I'm Paul Teese, your host, and in this episode of If When, we will be discussing cybersecurity with Michael Morgan, partner in the Global Privacy and Cybersecurity Practice at McDermott, Will & Emory, and Susan Howard, Director of Federal Industrial Control Systems Cybersecurity at Jacob's. Michael Morgan is recognized as one of America's leading lawyers in cybersecurity. He has guided clients through some of the largest and most complex data breaches involving more than 50 million records and incidents affecting persons in over 100 countries around the world. He counsels clients on compliance with U.S. and international regulations relating to cybersecurity and data privacy, including compliance with the EU's General Data Protection Regulation and China's Network Security Law. Susan Howard's remit in her role at Jacobs includes cybersecurity consulting for transportation, utilities, and the U.S. Department of Defense, with a focus on governance, risk and compliance, risk assessments, vulnerability assessments, and design oversight. Susan has a multidisciplinary skill set in cybersecurity compliance, secure network design, software engineering, industrial control systems, technology management, and has global experience in China, Taiwan, Europe, Israel, India, and South America. Michael, what kinds of cybersecurity activity are your clients being confronted with the most? What are some of the most common avenues of attack they're seeing? The things that we're seeing the most right now are ransomware attacks and business email compromises. I would have given the same answer if you had asked a year ago. Ransomware attacks in particular have been pretty extensive over the last couple of years. They continue to be really devastating. The ransomware attackers are taking a little more time in the networks before actually executing the encryption of the network. They're taking a little more time to make sure that their encryption efforts will be devastating to the company. They're also taking more time to understand the sensitivity of the information that is being compromised. You know, ransomware is an area where we're seeing a lot of activity. It's hitting, you know, a lot of industrial companies, companies that are defense contracting space. We're seeing a lot of ransomware targeting local governments, targeting schools 
and targeting hospitals. That's where we're seeing a lot of a lot of the activity these days. Business email compromises continue to be a real problem, seeing them in a pretty heavy pace. Uh, I was reading Accenture had released its uh, ninth annual cost of cybercrime study earlier this year. The two types of attacks that they showed that had increased the most were ransomware attacks at 21% and malicious insider attacks at 15%. They said that there had been a 67% increase in security breaches in the last five years with the average cost of cybercrime up to $13 million. It looks like cybercrime is big business. It's, there's a lot of money that these criminals are making. Susan, in the federal space and working with government clients, you know, what types of cyber attacks are you seeing or showing the most troubling increase in frequency, reach, and impact? Is it similar, you know, ransomware, malicious insider, or are there other things, maybe governmental actors, bad actors out there? What, what are some of the things that you're seeing? So the clients that we work with are federal, but also state and local governments. And we do see ransomware still, as we did last year. But the difference here is that, like Michael was alluding to, the ransomware attacks not only affect the enterprise, but they move into the industrial control systems as well, because our clients in the public utility sector sometimes don't have properly segmented networks. So a ransomware attack that you would expect only to affect the enterprise creeps into the industrial control system side, and this is the very scary part. So we spend a lot of time doing design analysis, ensuring that our clients have properly segmented networks so that enterprise attacks don't affect your industrial control system side. And in the transportation sector and other sectors that are publicly facing, APIs right now are the bane of our existence. I understand that people love APIs, application program interfaces, because it's great that I can go to Uber and have my Uber app access my Concur expense app and help me with my expense reports. On the backside, what's happening is that data is being sent in the clear without encryption sometimes. The necessary application security testing is not being done on these APIs. And so the world revolves around APIs right now. The problem is that we're moving so quickly that we're not able to properly test these APIs. And we're, this is resulting in some really large data breaches like we saw this year, I think, with eBite, LinkedIn. I don't know when Adobe was probably last year or something. So, so we're moving really quickly with APIs. Everybody's talking to each other. That's great. But we're not securely testing the security of these applications before we're releasing them. And the bad guys are understand that and they're exploiting them at an increasingly uh, high rate. And if you doubt that, you can go to the Have I Been Pwned website, right? Pwn being P-W-N, which has been around for a while, but there are over 3 million accounts that have been compromised. And I think it's largely, actually many of us that do assessments can see that it's largely due to the increase in API use and the fact that application security testing tools aren't being properly applied because we're moving so quickly. So it sounds like a, uh, largely it's kind of a behavioral issue. Uh, it's people's mindset and behaviors. They haven't maybe taken steps to increase their situational awareness around cybersecurity. Would that be a fair assessment that it's largely behavioral and then the technology 
follows how it's being used or not being used in this case? Yeah, I think it's behavioral, but in a process sense, right? So, mm -hmm. so DevOps, that's the really cool thing to do right now, right? Is script all of your configurations. But the problem is that we're not applying security to those scripts that we're developing. So that is a behavioral issue that can be mitigated with the proper processes. We just need to increase our use of application security testing in all of our components, right? In APIs and DevOps and all these other things that are making it really easy for us to use DoorDash, you know, with Google Maps and all these things. But we need to do that in a secure manner. And Michael, from where you sit, where are some of the most egregious blind spots that corporations and institutions and other organizations may have in relation to their cybersecurity practice and how can they rectify those? You know, it's a, it's a great question. I would say that you know, one of the big blind spots that organizations tend to have is that they don't really know the true value of the data and the risk that that data presents to the organization. Cybersecurity is, is a complicated issue and most people including executives that think about the issue, tend to think of it first and foremost from a technical controls perspective. But it can be hard for organizations to make decisions about overall cybersecurity risk when many of the people that are responsible for those decisions at the C-suite or in other parts of the organization, including the legal and the risk functions, may not have a real clear sense of the maturity of the organization from a cybersecurity perspective. The knowledge about the organization's overall information security maturity may reside within the minds of a handful of people. And those people may also be in a position where, you know, they're neither incentivized nor for other reasons are not communicating that information in a clear, understandable way to the parts of the organization that are responsible for risk mitigation and resource allocation and management of overall risk. I think many organizations need to do a better job in making sure that broadly within the organization, including within the C-suite, there's an understanding of overall cybersecurity risk and an understanding of the organization's overall cybersecurity maturity. And that could be a challenge for some organizations to actually have a dialogue within the highest ranks of the organization about where real vulnerabilities and enterprise-level events could occur. Many organizations don't understand that some of their biggest cybersecurity risks are not really the result of cybersecurity controls, but they exist in contracts, for example, that the company may have entered into where the company took on or made representations about cybersecurity that may not have in fact been true or may not have been fully vetted. Risk can arise from contracting practices in other areas, like there may not be limitations of liability in situations where those would be appropriate, or there may not be a fair allocation in contracts with third parties as to where cybersecurity losses would fall. There may not have been sufficient consideration of indemnities. And these sorts of contracting practices can, in many instances, have very large consequences for companies, especially in the mergers and acquisitions and corporate transaction space. Within my community, the cybersecurity legal community, we often talk about how many of our largest breaches may have been handled for clients that are not, we're not actually at fault for it, but our clients assumed contractual liability or did an M&A transaction to acquire an entity that was cyber insecure. And 
ended up having a very hefty liability as a result of that. So I think the biggest blind spot is really with respect to overall cybersecurity risk of the organization and where it comes from. The way to rectify it, there are no easy fixes to this, but it requires a candid, thorough discussion at the highest levels of the organization as to what are the threats that the company faces, what are the scenarios of cyber incidents that are likely to be most impactful to the organization, what are the legal requirements that are applicable to the organization, how do you, how do you conform your cybersecurity practices to those legal requirements, and what is the progress that the company is making on its cybersecurity improvement initiatives. I mean, how many C-suites out there truly have a good understanding of how information security and the organization in general is doing at executing against their cybersecurity improvement initiatives? And also the cost component. Does the C-suite, does the board understand what sort of resources are required for information security? I think that most people would probably underestimate just how much good information security costs. These efforts are really expensive. And just one more blind spot is I think that many organizations are not sensitive to the legal significance of some of the things that are done in the information security function. You know, we as as lawyers are often called upon to defend companies against claims that they had unreasonable information security. It can be really hard to defend those cases if there is a clear record of all the areas in which the organization fell short in information security over the years. It's really important to involve in-house lawyers and where appropriate outside counsel in the question of how you're documenting your cybersecurity improvement effort because the lawyers are gonna have pretty strong views about how to do it in a way that creates a record that if it ever ends up in front of a regulator or in front of a court, is going to make the company appear in a favorable light. It's fascinating, you talk about the, the financial impact. According to that Accenture report that I cited earlier, they speculate that organizations globally could benefit from over $5 trillion of future revenues over the next five years if they had appropriate cybersecurity protocols in place. And Tech Radar uh, industry publication cites that the global cybersecurity market is going to be valued at roughly $143 billion by 2021. So there's a lot of money, to your point, being spent by organizations to ensure that they have robust cybersecurity defenses in place. But the cost for not doing so is, frankly, is astronomical. You know, a lot of the discussions that we have, and I expect Susan's been part of these discussions, is how to actually calculate a return on investment for cybersecurity investment. And when you're doing discussions with the board, oftentimes the discussion begins with the discussion about what is the value to the organization of the data that it possesses and what is the price tag that would be associated in the event that that data were compromised. There have been developments in recent years that have dramatically increased the potential exposure in data breaches, and those help to create a framework to calculate return on investment for cybersecurity investments. But again, these investments are really expensive. It costs a lot of money, and in many instances, it, it requires new systems. It requires additional headcount to actually 
staff those systems and, and to follow up on things like chasing alerts and doing all the sometimes mundane tasks that are required to secure a network. But at the end of the day, the cost is very expensive. So on that point, Susan, speaking about you know mitigating activities, what are some of the best practices you've seen organizations enact that have been particularly effective in combating cyber attacks? Well, so I wanted to quickly follow up on what Michael said, which is absolutely true, that we have people entering into prime and subcontract arrangements, joint ventures and things like that, that have absolutely no idea what cybersecurity risk they have in those contracts. And so it's really important to get your indemnity clauses right and to get other things right in your supply chain because the risk is incredibly high. And we've got people in industrial control systems, for instance, in the federal sector, This is very new to everyone. These people are not the people that are used to doing cybersecurity on a daily basis. A lot of the I's are not being dotted and the T's aren't being crossed, and this is very dangerous. Thanks, Michael, for supporting that effort. Part of that that we're seeing now is the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification, CMMC, that's being enacted uh, fiscal year or this 2020 for the federal sector to help us shore up our maturity level with our supply chain in our different contractual venues in the federal sector. So um, how, does, how does that work, Susan, with this maturity model? Does it ensure that you are, as part of an ecosystem, that you are situationally aware of yes. your indemnities? Okay. Yes. Can you explain and, that a little bit? Yeah, so there's like uh, five different levels, and the sweet spot is somewhere around level three, right? This means that you have all of your contracts reviewed by somebody that is cybersecurity savvy in your general counsel office, that you have the qualified and certified staff that you claim to have. There's some cyber certifications that the federal sector is requiring now so that you can ensure your supply chain is well-versed in what they claim to be well-versed in. You can't, for instance, use a mechanical engineer with no cyber background to perform penetration testing on a control system. We need to have the proper certifications for the proper skill sets, et cetera. And so what we are told is going to happen is that the federal government is going to start requiring that we list our cybersecurity maturity model number, right, like level three or level four, in our response to all of RFPs starting at the end of 2020 is what I've heard. So this is going to definitely help the supply chain problems we have now and, like I was saying, thin the herd a bit. There was an article in the New Yorker just recently about a company that claimed to have capabilities that they did not. It's like the irrational exuberance that existed during the dot-com days. Everyone is claiming to be an expert in cybersecurity, and it's really hurting the supply chain. So CMMC, I think, is a great effort. You asked me about common practices that organizations can use and What are some of the best practices you've seen that have been effective in combating cyber attacks? Yeah, so my answer today is the same answer I would have given 20 years ago because it's so overlooked, and that is know what you have. When we go out to do assessments or pen testing or whatever at these sites, we find uh, back doors into systems that have been there for 15 years and nobody knew. You need to know, you need to have an accurate asset inventory and this needs to be kept up to date. It's not sexy, it's not cool, nobody wants to do it, but it is by far the biggest gap we see 
in all of our, especially control system environments. We have vendors that come in and set up a VPN that they need to get their work done and they go away and that VPN is left there and nobody knows about it. Uh, number one for sure is asset management and knowing what you have because if you don't know you have it, you can't protect it. And that doesn't require uh, millions of dollars of capital investment. It just requires sound practices around asset control. The second thing probably is knowing how your networks behave, how your systems behave. Before there's an attack in progress, you need to have a baseline so that you know what normal looks like because when you get attacked, it's not the time to try and create a baseline. You need to document what your traffic patterns are, what your ingress and egress points are. All of this needs to be documented so that when anomalous things start happening, you're clearly aware that something is not going well. Michael, cycling back a little bit to the maturity certificate that Susan was speaking to, what are some recent developments in cybersecurity laws and regulations that you are finding are proving particularly effective? For a regulation to be effective, it needs to have an impact on the regulated entities. It needs to result in some change to how things are done. I would say that there are two ways that regulations have gone about trying to do that. Some regulations actually try to be pretty prescriptive and say you need to do these specific things. And I, I think they do that on the theory that by requiring specificity, it's going to force a discussion at the organization about each and every one of those requirements and a consideration of what is it that we're going to do as an organization to put ourselves in a position to say that we're compliant. That's one approach. Another approach that's being taken by California is to just raise the financial stakes from breaches. I think I, I want to talk about both of these briefly. There are a number of regulations that have been fairly prescriptive in their approach that have told companies what it is that they need to do and that in response, industry has taken, I'd say, fairly seriously. Some of the ones that come to mind for that are things like the New York Department of Financial Services cybersecurity regulation. There are regulations in the defense space that Susan could speak to, but the DFARS rules and assessments against NIST 800-171 would be an example where I think a lot of good can come from those assessments if done, and certainly there's a requirement to do so. Within uh, other industries, I, I think that the cybersecurity regulations applicable to the financial services sector have been generally effective. Things like the FFIEC IT handbook and their cybersecurity assessment tool have had, I think, the intended effect of getting financial or businesses that are in the financial services industry to assign resources to the process that they're encouraging. Even in California, where the California law has generally been phrased in terms of maintaining reasonable information security. There was some unofficial publication by the California AG that endorsed the Center for Internet Security top 20 standards. Those standards setting forth 20 domains of information security. That sort of specificity is helpful to companies that are trying to achieve compliance because it helps structure the discussion. And all of these laws that are prescriptive in nature I've criticized many of these laws in particular at various points in time in the past, but 
one of the things that those laws do aim to do is to force a discussion and a consideration about around specific things like the development of a written security program or the assessment of cybersecurity or just a regular process for identifying vulnerabilities and making plans to remediate those vulnerabilities. Regulations and laws that speak in those directions as, as a general matter can be helpful in affecting change in the regulated industries. The second area that I think needs to be emphasized is that in California in particular, the legislature has taken a pretty dramatic step to raise the stakes in cybersecurity. If you look back over in the past at large-scale data breaches, you can find some examples of some fairly large data breach settlements, meaning settlements in the nine figures or the eight figures. But, you know, those are more the exception than the norm. By and large, data breach cases have been settled for relatively low amounts, or we've been able to get out of those cases entirely on the theory that the plaintiff didn't suffer any harm that the plaintiff could prove. I mean, after all, really, who can prove that they're injured by a data breach? In the vast majority of instances, your data goes out, and if you subsequently suffer identity theft, it could have been the result of any number of prior incidents. So what California did is California said, if you have a breach of California data, a plaintiff, an individual whose information was compromised, can bring a private lawsuit and can seek to recover a statutory penalty of up to $750 per record per consumer. So in a class action, if you have a tiny, tiny data breach of 1,000 records, that could correspond to a $750,000 potential exposure in litigation. And if you take even moderate-sized breaches, I, I, I've handled breaches that were close to half a million records that never resulted in litigation. Nowadays, if you have a large breach like that, and it's California data, that could correspond to, you know, that could be a $300 million lawsuit. California's approach is to say, well, we're not going to tell you what to do, but we're going to just raise the price tag in the event that you do have a breach. I think that California's approach is unfortunate for a number of reasons, because I think that the reasonableness of information security is not ideally settled in the context of civil litigation. But that's the approach that California has taken. And we'll have to see if it drives change. The whole purpose of the statute is to force changes in how data is secured. And we've also seen developments in China, and in Europe in connection with cybersecurity. You know, each one of those is a, is a different story, but you know, there's a lot of work that remains to be done in terms of securing networks around the world. It sounds like with more of a focus in California on the penalty than on the prescriptive behavior, it might be a burgeoning cottage industry for cybersecurity firms to go in and advise commercial organizations there. Yeah, I think that if you have a, if you have a breach, and it involves large amounts of California data, you sure as heck better do really, really good forensics to try to reduce, you know, to try to prove that certain data sets were not compromised. I mean, in the past, you could kind of, there wasn't that much of a risk if you over-notified, but now that there's a price tag on it, I think we're going to see a lot better forensic investigations in response to compromises of California data sets because folks aren't going to want to send out a notice to anybody who's not absolutely 100% entitled to it. So switching gears a little bit, uh, Susan, this next question is for you. And I was pondering the role of emerging technologies such as artificial intelligence and edge computing and 
distributed cloud, data analytics, that sort of thing. How do you see those emerging technologies being deployed in cybersecurity efforts? Artificial intelligence is helping us immensely in analyzing the millions of cyber events per day that we see out of a standard security operations center. There are now tools, embedded artificial intelligence tools in our SIM platforms and our antivirus platforms that greatly reduce the human effort required to do this learning of what anomalies are. Heuristic algorithms now are being built. I think Silence is one of the first antivirus platforms that was based on heuristics. There have been many others since then. And what I'm seeing, what we are all seeing, is that artificial intelligence is helping reduce headcount in our security operations centers because there is no way any human brain can analyze 82 million events per day, which was the last count, the last I worked in a security operations center for an energy company. So artificial intelligence is the great hope right now. All of us in cybersecurity believe that this is going to continue increasing security of platforms and reduce the amount of human intervention required moving forward. In terms of edge computing, we haven't seen such return on investment there. What we have seen is that edge computing has been used by the dark side for many years uh, and manifested as botnets. We've seen this also happen in Bitcoin mining and blockchain environments. Edge computing right now hasn't delivered a lot for cybersecurity, but it has been a new threat environment that we have to react to. Data analytics, much the same as artificial intelligence, we are getting a lot of return on investment with data analytics, allowing our threat hunters to detect patterns more quickly, allowing us to deliver KPIs to our board and other venues quickly. So data analytics is something that we also look to to help us in the cybersecurity environment. In terms of cloud computing, that's a kind of a double-edged sword right now. If done correctly, cloud computing can actually enhance and increase security on your platform for the enterprise. Right now, the big thing that both the white hat and the black hat community are involved with is hacking into serverless runtimes. Containerization with Kubernetes and Docker and other container platforms are very intriguing to both the bad guys and the good guys. We want to know how to break them, and we have broken them. And this is a problem that needs to be fixed before cloud can be rolled out in a really secure manner. So it's great that we have these containers which act as virtual servers now instead of physical servers. But securing them is, again, part of application security, and we're not there yet. These discussions have been going on at Black Hat for a few years now, but there's heightened awareness that containers are inherently insecure and there is a huge effort underway to secure the applications that run these serverless environments. So cloud computing has much promise, but there's a few gaps that need to be fixed before we can jump completely on the cloud bandwagon with cyber. Michael, what industries are you seeing most at risk for falling prey to cyber attacks uh, now and in the future? Yeah, I think the ones that are most at risk of being affected by an impactful event, like one that one that really matters. I mean, every business is vulnerable to attacks. I think the ones that cause me the most concern are the ones that would be, well, and the ones that I'm seeing the, seeing the most activity would be in the defense sector. And more generally, the ones that are that are likely targeted by nation state attackers, that would be the defense industry, government, and even big data, tech, and telecom. 
ones that are attractive to foreign state actors, those are ones where we're seeing activity. On the ransomware front, seeing a lot of activity directed to the industrial sector, hospitals, schools, and also governments, including local governments. Those are the areas where we're seeing the most activity. In uh, National Defense Magazine, they had reported this year that the U.S. Department of Defense is expected to significantly boost investment in cybersecurity technology to over $4 billion annually by 2023. Are you seeing it? Are your defense and government, state, local, and federal government clients, are they asking for more? Are you seeing more and more ginned up activity on cybersecurity? Absolutely. You probably know in the energy sector, NERC-SIP governance has been around for a long time. But just this year, America's Water Infrastructure Act brought NERC-SIP type compliance and governance to the water industry, for instance. And there's a ton of money being thrown at that right now to bring water and wastewater utilities up in terms of their cybersecurity maturity. But also in the control system world, there is a lot of effort being spent in securing the control systems that otherwise people have ignored. Because as Michael was saying, these are increasingly becoming targets due to the amount of damage that can be made by a simple attack on an infrastructure versus an enterprise IT environment. My last question for today is for both of you, and Michael, we'll start with you. What are two or three of the best pieces of cybersecurity advice you would give to organizations? I think the first thing that I would say is make sure that the leaders of your organization have a pretty good understanding of what your legal and regulatory obligations are with respect to cybersecurity. Make sure that they understand how mature or immature the organization is from a cybersecurity perspective. Make sure that they understand where the real threats are and how the organization is doing. You want to put yourself in a situation where those leaders are being asked a very fair question, which is, how much risk are we prepared to accept and how much money are we prepared to spend to manage that risk? If we could increase the flow of information from the IT and the InfoSec functions to the executive function and other important risk functions within the organization, I think that we will have come a long way and done some real good within our organization. The other piece of advice would be, you know, ask the basic questions like, you know, what are the threats that we're most likely to have encountered? And cybersecurity is complicated. Depending on how you slice and dice it, it's a few dozen domains that really matter. And you take all those domains together and you arrive at an overall risk for the organization. You know, many of us, like in my role, We get involved at a stage when the things that we can do are, you know, we can do a lot to help the organization, but we generally take the environments as we find them. So if a client has a big breach, we can make sure that the forensics is done in a very thorough way such that there can be reasonable confidence that you're not notifying people who don't otherwise need to be notified and you're facing a a lawsuit from folks that aren't entitled to sue you. But organizations need to take it upon themselves to take responsibility for the level of cybersecurity that they choose to put in place. And it is a a process, and it's a lot of work. There are some clients that we brief their executive teams on a quarterly basis about what the new threats are affecting them, what are the changes to the relevant legal 
environment and how the organization is doing on their cybersecurity improvement program. Corporations and businesses need to decide just how mature they want to be and take responsibility for that because not every client is the same, not every business is the same. Everybody has budget constraints, but at the end of the day, it needs to be a senior level decision as to just how mature it is and just how compliant the organization wants to be. And Susan, a similar question for you is what are the two to three best pieces of cybersecurity advice that you would give to organizations? So I think Michael would agree with this statement that we need to hire cyber savvy general counsel in all of our organizations, and we need to do that before we find ourselves in a bad situation, right? We need to understand what our cybersecurity risks are, and this has to happen with general counsel and with executive levels, including your board of directors, not just your IT folks. So that's one thing that I see over and over is that we go to general counsel when we do assessments and we find very few of these organizations have people in place that are cyber savvy. So this is a growing area of concern that needs to be mitigated. The other thing we see is that we have people that are responsible for cybersecurity, like your CISOs, right? Your chief information security officers, but they're not at C-suite level. They're reporting under finance or reporting under IT. And so they don't have a C at C-suite level where they can be most effective. This is changing and it has changed over the past 20 years, but still it is a gap we see a lot. The other thing we see a lot is lack of understanding of cybersecurity insurance policy. So we typically go in and do an assessment and I'll hear, well, we've got cybersecurity insurance we're covered for that particular type of breach or for that attack. And, and when it comes down to it, your cybersecurity insurance covers far less than what you think it does. So I would advise organizations to really know what your cybersecurity insurance covers and what it does not. Before even doing that, of course, you should ensure that you have cybersecurity insurance there are some pieces of governance and compliance like NERC-SIP in the energy sector that requires that you have cybersecurity insurance, but for many organizations, this is not a requirement. So it's something that needs to be attended to. Well, Michael and Susan, thank you both for your time today. Very sound advice and insights on cybersecurity. I'm sure it's a topic that people will be talking about for years and years to come. I can only imagine that the landscape is going to become even more complex with the types of attacks as well as the type of regulations and preventative measures. So a lot more to be developed here in the years ahead, but thank you both for your time today.